Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Our guest today is Adam Eckhart, Associate Professor of Legal Writing at Suffolk University. We'll be discussing his recent article in Business We Trust, which was published in the Wake Forest Journal of Business and Intellectual Property Law. I'll have a link to the episode in the show notes for the episode. Adam, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Adam, your paper has this intriguing title about business being a, an object of, of social trust. And I wondered if you could introduce that concept for the listeners. And this article, you're talking about the role and the place of activism in corporate America, corporations getting engaged on social, political, cultural issues. So I wondered if you could give us a broad sweep of history here for corporate America. In what ways over the the decades or the centuries, perhaps, have large companies been willing to weigh in or not willing to weigh in on social issues or activism? Do we have any examples of that over time to think about in terms of just framing this conversation and your paper? Yes, I'd be happy to talk about that. And I'll think about that in, in a couple of different parts. First, Historically, businesses have been interested in advocacy when it's advanced their own interests. So if you're familiar, there's a great book by Adam Winkler at UCLA Law called We the Corporations. And it discusses how businesses over time in the last several centuries have gained constitutional rights over the years, such as their speech rights. But in that book, Winkler also discusses some of the early statements business people have made about promoting social welfare, and not too much in in terms of the way we'll discuss political issues today, but they did make statements to promote social good. And so one example of that is in 1916, Ford Motor Company announced that they would not distribute a special dividend to shareholders, despite having the money on hand, because they had fears that the war in Europe would come home and then there would be potentially a depression, which of course happened. And they wanted to keep the money on hand so that they could prevent layoffs. And instead of lining the pockets of their shareholders, they thought that it was prudent policy long-term in order to keep people employed, especially during an impending time like that. Now, of course, Ford and other companies made this argument because they believed it helped society at large, but also it helped their long-term financial stability of their company. So we have seen some instances like that, but over time, Typically, businesses didn't go any further than that. And they'd seldom get involved directly with the social issue or activism. But I will caveat that with one example, because from time to time, we did see corporations and organizations mobilized to speak out about certain topics. And especially in the 1960s and 70s, companies and organizations were speaking out against segregation and trying to promote racial integration. And the Sullivan Principles was something that came about During that time, I advocated for the equal treatment of employees, regardless of their race, and it ended up being formally adopted by over 125 United States corporations. 
And just another example in that kind of same area in the 1960s, McDonald's supported social change by integrating black employees and citizens into hiring and marketing. And although it's not a kind of corporate example, a great example that I love is the Beatles, their 1965 performance agreement stated that the group might not be required to perform in front of segregated audiences. So while I think businesses have largely tried to stay on the sidelines prior to recent times, we have seen some examples of really high profile issues where businesses have spoken out on social issues of the time. I'd like to perhaps bring us back to the present day, or at least the last few years uh, when it comes to corporate activism. Can you talk a bit about what areas we've seen corporate America get engaged in and what's motivated that engagement from corporate America? So while that historical context, corporations typically have not waded into these different areas of social activism, I think that's really changed in the last 10 years or so. First, I think it's helpful to think back and go back to the 2010 decision in Citizens United. And of course, in that case, business sued for its right to participate in the political process, including with restrictions on political spending. And ultimately, the Supreme Court held that businesses like people could promote candidates of their choosing and could support them financially. So I think that really that was perhaps one of the tipping points in businesses becoming more active in terms of their corporate activism or social activism. And so now what are businesses doing in this area after that time? What counts as their quote unquote, social activism. I put it in a couple different buckets. Businesses typically do one of two things or they'll do an action that combines both of them. The first is public speech. They'll take a position on a public issue such as either ending past legislation or maybe a court case or something like that at the state or national level. And they'll make a statement about it, a release or some type of uh, public speech. The second kind of area is private action. So sometimes companies or businesses will take specific action, specific or concrete steps to either enact social change with their stakeholders, employees, community members, others, and either give them benefits or try to make benefits available to them that are otherwise unavailable. And sometimes they're otherwise unavailable because there's perceived a public shortfalling or a gap, perhaps the government providing. Or the third option here would they be speaking about something, but making some action as well. So let me get to that. Another part of that question was, where are we seeing businesses do these things? I'll talk about it in a couple different areas just to highlight the points. The first is with respect to LGBTQ rights. Before marriage equality was the law of the land, for example, a 2011 survey reported that almost 60% of companies on the Fortune 500 list provided equal benefits for employees, same-sex partners, and spouses. So this was a tax gross-up, where basically these business organizations provided a tax payment to same-sex couples that were legally married in the states, but whose marriage was not recognized federally. And because of the federal tax laws, if your marriage was not recognized federally, you had to essentially pay a little bit more in tax. And so what these companies did with this gay gross-up was they gave these same-sex couples this money, which put them on equal footing as heterosexual companies that worked at the same company. 
to basically say, we're going to step in and, and solve this quote unquote problem or perceived problem that they thought it was a problem through this private action. So that's an example of the private. Also with respect to marriage equality in 2015 with a burger fell before the United States Supreme court, nearly 400 companies and organizations submitted an amicus brief to the U S Supreme court arguing for the recognition of same sex marriage. And these are companies, everyday companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, Goldman, JP Morgan, Stanley, Nike, Coke. And then an example within this LGBTQ plus rights of kind of both is list is the classic example in the article about 2016, the National Basketball Association had their all-star game scheduled for Charlotte, North Carolina, something that they had announced years before. Yet North Carolina passed the HB2 bill, which many of us may remember known as the bathroom bill. And it required that students in North Carolina use the bathroom that corresponded with their gender assigned at birth. There was public fallout. Many people thought that this was not the right thing to do. And the NBA actually decided to pull out from Charlotte. They said, we're not going to bring our all-star game here. If this is going to be the culture that is going to be fostered in this state. And they brought it to New Orleans. North Carolina, it was estimated, lost $3 billion in revenue associated with that one all-star game and the week-long festivities around it. And ultimately, the next year, under a new administration, the bill was partially repealed. And I think that shows a little bit of the power of these actions and statements. On this LGBTQ plus area, though, I, I do want to highlight that it's the examples that I just provided are on one side of the aisle, but it happens on both. And so Chick-fil-A, for example, national food chain, been a long and steadfast opponent of same-sex marriage, beginning with statements that they made in 2011, 2012. And so they've received some pushback, which I describe in the paper, but they've actually had enormous staying power throughout this time. They've become the third largest restaurant chain and have profits over $10 billion a year. So I think that there's a lot going on in, in that space. I want to talk about another space too that we've seen advocacy in this area, and that's with respect to gun safety. So one retailer in particular, Dick Sporting Goods, has been vocal and actionable in this area. In the wake of the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting, Dick Sporting Goods, which was one of the nation's largest firearm sellers at that point, announced that they would stop selling AR-15 firearms in their stores altogether. And then in 2018, after the Parkland shooting, Dick's went further. They raised the minimum age for firearms in their stores. They announced that they'd no longer sell assault rifles and bump stock, and they actually destroyed $5 million worth of inventory that they decided that they weren't going to sell. And they did receive some kind of initial backlash, but by and large, since this time, Dix has done well, they've been profitable, and outspoken CEO has really earned a lot of accolades for the way that they've handled this. Final bucket that I'll mention is with contraception and abortion, and we've seen this especially the Dobb decisions and with particular emphasis on Dobbs, but we saw it with respect to Hobby Lobby in 2014 as well. Many companies have come out with public statements supporting women's health or women's right to choose. And many companies have gone further right to that public statement, but actually those actual private actions as well. 
Amazon, for example, offered to pay up to $4,000 in travel expenses for medical treatments, including abortions of their employees. Airbnb offered to reimburse employees for out-of-state abortions. Salesforce offered to provide financial support and travel. Google went further just to say, blanket, if you'd like to move out of a state that no longer allows abortion, you can move to another state, need to work for us. So we've seen a lot of, of that action since Dobbs. And these were just some examples. We've seen it in terms of race. We've seen it in terms of immigration. But increasingly, all of these examples in the last 10 years, and we see it more and more headlines almost every week with respect to this area. I'd like to turn to the classic example from 2016 that you offer with the anti-trans bathroom bill in North Carolina and the reaction of, of corporate America to that, which in a lot of ways pitted corporate America, the NBA, for example, against a state government. I'm thinking about this particularly in light of the last few years where we've seen an anti-ESG or a critical race theory backlash in some state governments. Could you tell us about the dynamics, the history of corporate activism potentially conflicting with government and perhaps give us some insights into how that is playing out now with some of the developments we've seen in, in various states around the country? We've definitely seen this a few times where we've seen that clash between the objectives of a business and the objectives of a government. And so I explained, as you mentioned, that 2016 impact of the NBA All-Star Game on the fate of HB2 in North Carolina. It's interesting, after North Carolina repealed or partially repealed that bill, the All-Star Game actually did come back to Charlotte, almost rewarding North Carolina. In 2015, then-Governor Mike Pence signed a Religious Freedom and Restoration Act bill that really was met with widespread disdain from the corporate community, uh, Salesforce, Apple, Eli Lilly, Angie's List, all canceled events, the NCAA, the NBA, the WNBA canceled events, spoke out against the bill. And so there was a response to that bill that was estimated about Indianapolis just in the year 2015, losing about $60 million in revenue. Indiana then passed a subsequent bill, arguably aimed to soften the stance, which People may disagree on whether it achieved that goal or not, but there was government action to try to solve that problem that was raised by businesses. And then we've seen a couple of recent examples as well. In, in 2022, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Parental Rights Education Bill, and then there's been significant backlash about that bill. Over 150 companies signed a human rights campaign letter opposing the legislation. And ultimately being out front against this bill was Walt Disney Company. And that has since uh, spiraled into a different tale. If we had an entirely other episode, we could talk about that. But Florida subsequently revoked Disney's Reedy Creek Special Governing District. Long story short, ultimately led to a retaliation suit by Disney against Florida. And this is still playing out. In the last week, actually, Governor Santos that he's, quote, moved on from the dispute, although it's still pending in court. So I think it remains to be seen what happens here and whether the lessons that we learned in 2015 in Indiana, 2016 in North Carolina, whether those still hold true or not, or whether the power of businesses with respect to government remains. There's also been a couple of anti-woke examples and 
anti-ESG examples. In the anti-ESG space, we've seen efforts mostly by Republican administrations against ESG investing. Former Vice President Mike Pence and an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal arguing against ESGs. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill uh, barring state officials from investing public money in ESG funds. And that's probably the most high profile, but about 15 states have passed some sort of anti-ESG legislation. And on the opposite end, about four or so states have passed some sort of pro-ESG legislation. So it's really interesting area in terms of how governments are trying to handle these different things, especially with the ESG investing. Especially interesting, I think, because in a recent survey about two-thirds of people that are high net worth Gen X investors said that they analyze their portfolios specifically for ESG investments. So it seems like there may be a demand for it, yet there's definitely a push being away from it. And then I'll just mention that anti-woke example recently from April of this year is the case of Bud Light. It doesn't involve a government actor, but we saw Bud Light sent basically a handful of personalized cans to an influencer, Dylan Mulvaney, who's transgender. And although Bud Light never sold the peers that Mulvaney was on the cans, uh, Mulvaney was never, from what I can tell, any sort of official spokesperson of Light, but was indicating their support for Bud Light. The backlash against Bud Light was significant. And we've seen Target have a recent backlash as well. A boycott of Bud Light ensued. Many high-profile celebrities said that they would boycott the beer. And it's an interesting example because I think Bud Light's taken some heat on this. Maybe it's damaged their reputation with some key customer demographics. But overall, and I think we've seen this in a variety of different ways. We saw it in the Dick's example, right? Anheuser-Busch, InBev, the Bud Light's parent company, really hasn't seen any significant decline in their stock, right? So their stock's up about 10% over the last 12 months compared to the NASDAQ, which shot to 15 over the last same period of time. We still see them overall as a company performing well, despite maybe some high-profile backlash by some small groups that are opposed to their views. It's an interesting example, I think. You noted a moment ago that a healthy proportion of Gen X and perhaps millennial investors think about some of these issues when they are deciding what goes in their portfolio, which I think leads us to the discussion about the corporate governance implications of social activism by corporate actors. Corporations, of course, decide to engage in social activism through their agents. They are governed by their directors and officers, particularly their CEOs on issues like this or decisions like this. And of course, those directors and officers have fiduciary duties to the corporation. Could you situate this phenomena or this phenomenon of corporate social activism within the context of corporate governance and the fiduciary duties that directors and officers owe to their companies and indirectly to their shareholders? It's a great point and and something I explore in the article. Fiduciaries have traditionally considered the duty of loyalty that they have to the corporation as encompassing the duty to maximize profits for shareholders. And so this kind of shareholder primacy theory asserts primary business, it's maximize profits for shareholders, it's the singular goal of the board. 
But that said, of course, fiduciaries have broad discretion to execute and that by advancing an alternative strategy aimed at maximizing profits or company value in the long run, they're still fulfilling the duty. Recent scholarship has also suggested that, at least in some industries, shareholder-centric model is insufficient and a broader stakeholder-centric model is more appropriate. Instead of looking just at the shareholder and the profits, we should instead look at all of the stakeholders involved in a corporation. And in that stakeholder theory, we're thinking about maybe the employee who doesn't own a portion of the business. And we think about Making that employee happy ultimately is helpful for the business and the shareholders as a whole, because if that employee is happy, they might be more productive, less training and development, and, and things like that. There's other efficiencies the business might achieve. But in either regard, really, either that shareholder primacy model or the stakeholder theory the broad discretion that fiduciaries have in either model can support corporate activism. And so for many of these decisions by corporations, they'll argue that these actions, they are completed to make their businesses more appealing, either to customers, employees, or others, and therefore more profitable. And so in this regard, I think it's interesting some businesses have dug up some data in order to back up some of the decisions that they're making in this area. I mentioned that example of exporting goods. But to go back to that, for example, of banning certain sales of guns, the company at the time did a, a full analysis of comparing gun sales to what they replaced those shelves with after they banned the guns. And what they decided to replace the guns with was professional sports teams' jerseys. They basically swapped out, right, for the purposes of the analysis. And they found that the jerseys were actually more profitable than the guns that they were selling in the same retail space in their stores. And so I think in that instance, these corporations could simply point to some instance like this, like a study like this, and actually help alleviate the concerns of their shareholders and indicate that they were actually trying to preserve the long-term benefit or the long-term value of the company rather than the short term. As the fiduciaries do have that wide discretion, they will also be thinking about what that long-term value is. And so long as they're providing that long-term value for the business, they're satisfying those fiduciary duties. The last I checked, the collective value of the U.S. equities market was around $50 trillion. So I'm going to ask you perhaps the $50 trillion question. What is the proper place, in your view, for corporate activism in society? How should corporations, as, as powerful economic and cultural and, and social actors, use the potential power they have to weigh in on issues of pressing social and, and cultural import? And that's a big question, appropriately valued, I think. I argue that there's a place for it in today's society. I argue that there's a place for it uh, for a couple of reasons. First, many customers have now been accustomed to it uh, over the last decade or so. And I think governance theory supports companies doing it and, and becoming involved in activism. Second, I think that the private sector often fuels what we do in the public sector. So the public sector sometimes follows what we do in the private sector. 
in the example of gay marriage that I talked about before, many companies came out in support of gay marriage during the times that it was in front of the United States Supreme Court and before politicians were willing to make statements in support of gay marriage. And I think that the fact that by and large, those companies at that time did not receive heavy backlash for those public statements in support of gay marriage, at least I think, showed some politicians, showed some legislatures, and perhaps even showed the United States Supreme Court where public sentiment was on the topic. And I think it allowed, I'll use former President Obama's words, allowed politicians to evolve their views on that issue because they could see it playing out in the marketplace and could see how either things were accepted or not accepted. And I think that's one way in which that the private sector kind of leads the public sector in some ways. The third reason, I think, is because private contract and private law often serve as an important stopgap between the rights that people may expect or should have and where the government is on those rights, right? So we saw that example in the gay gross-up. Private companies were providing financial assistance to gay couples to say, basically, this is where the law should be. I recognize it's not there yet. We support you and we're going to make it right until the law gets there. And that's essentially what happened in that case. But similarly, private law has offered a variety of different benefits for people over time, benefits that many governments in other jurisdictions provide to their people, retirement, healthcare, childcare, family leave, things like that. And in a lot of situations, we have a extreme polarization of our politics in the United States. And so it may just be the case that especially in instances where much of the country agrees on a topic, but it just can't get done politically in Washington, D.C., maybe there is an opportunity for private law to step in some instances and fill some of those gaps. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview or from the article? So I think here's the takeaway. Companies are increasingly active politically. And they're already speaking out and they're already acting. So if we want to shape how companies act, then we should be talking about it. And as consumers, we should be exerting pressure on companies to do what we think is right, no matter what side of the political aisle we sit on. And so for us lawyers who are representing companies and us professors who are teaching the next generation of corporate lawyers, we must also talk about these actions and decisions and inform our clients of what benefits and pitfalls that they may have as a result of corporate activism. But it's here to stay, so I think it's important that we talk about and we consider how we work with companies and represent companies as lawyers. Our guest today has been Adam Eckhart, Associate Professor of Legal Writing at Suffolk University. We've discussed his recent article in Business We Trust, which was published in the Wake Forest Journal of Business and Intellectual Property Law. I'll add a link to the episode in the show notes for the episode. Adam, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate the show and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. 
My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. <laughs>